The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And to learn more about my work and the work of my two partners, Chen Lin and Roger Wiegand, you can go to miningstocks.com, that's M-I-N-I-N-G-S-T-O-C-K-S.com, or to webeatthestreet.com. You can sign up for trial offers for these subscriptions, um, so you can give it a try without spending too much money to find out if they're right for you. And you can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718 718- Four five seven one four two six. That's seven one eight four five seven one four two six. Claudia is away on vacation this week, so you'll talk to my wife if you call that number, Teresa Taylor at that number seven one eight four five seven one four two six. Two other websites where I am posting a daily blog are jtaylormedia.com. That's jaytaylormedia.com. Go and goldinvestor.com. And also to keep track of some companies on my radar screen, really some very interesting companies uh, on another site called jayswatchlist.com. That's J-A-Y-S watchlist.com. Excuse me. I want to thank each of you for listening again. Um, We also want to thank our uh, corporate sponsors who make this financially possible uh, for for this season yet. We have Apollo Gold, Bonterra Resources, Hawthorne Gold, Metanor Resources, Pediment Gold, Palangio Explorations, and Sand Gold. 
Now, there's not a lot happening right now over the Christmas season. Normally, there will be some news events that we want to bring to your attention from our sponsors. It's really kind of a quiet time of the year. So I just want to just blow my own horn a little bit. This year, we've had a very good year in our model portfolio in J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. We were up over 80%, our model portfolio. It slipped down a bit with the gold price coming back. We're up 69.44%. That compares with an S&P 500 of a 23% gain, so we beat the S&P 500 again. The big question now is whether or not this is a B wave up. Are we in a corrective mode, or are we on to a new bull market? And uh, we're going to get some thoughts from Roger Wiegand in a minute on that issue. Uh, Bob Hoy, who's been a guest on this show very frequently, has, I think, some great insights into which way these markets are going. And Bob is saying, watch the gold price relative to the silver price. If the gold price starts to gain significantly vis-a-vis silver, that is a danger sign that we could be entering another credit implosion episode like we had possibly last fall or even worse. Um, It's indicative of some credit strains in any event. Well, today when I checked it, the gold-to-silver ratio, and this was about a little after 12 o'clock noon Eastern time here, it was at 63.85 to 1. So we're getting fairly close to that gold-to-silver ratio that is a danger signal that has historically worked out well, according to Bob Hoy. I also follow this inflation-deflation watch index that I put together, and it continues to show that the establishment is having some success in pumping money into the system, stimulating the economy, and at least stimulating certain markets. I'm not convinced that they're really making any impact on the real economy to any great extent. Um, But is it a good thing that they're able to keep the bubble from popping, from imploding? For some thoughts on that, in the second and third segments of today's show, uh, we're going to talk to William Baker. He's the author of a, a, a wonderful book called Endless Money that has some great insights into it. But before we get to Bill, I want to just uh, chat with Roger Wiegand just for a moment. Roger, you there? I'm here. <clears throat> Roger, um, I'm looking, and I know you and I both follow the work. Uh, we follow the work of Dr. Robert McHugh very closely. <clears throat> and um, McHugh is now suggesting that, uh, you know, I think clearly some time ago he was quite, quite concerned that we were going to enter a major down leg in this equity market again. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, now he's talking about, you know, we've seen a sideways market for, for a number of months here now, and he's looking at, a, at um, on the S&P 500 at 1120 as a key level. If we get above 1120, then we're probably going to see a considerably higher move in the equity market. If we fall below 1075, though, on the other hand, he says that's likely to suggest that we're on to this major uh, decline that that uh, that McHugh or that uh, Bob Hoy would be looking for if the gold silver ratio rises significantly. What are your thoughts on this, Roger? Do you see? Do you believe that we are still in a bear market? That we're in a secular bear market now, or do you think st- uh, no, that we're, we're into in a, a new bull market? Secular bear market for the for the uh, stocks and the stock indexes for the long range, and it's important to talk about which cycle or time cycle you're you're speaking of. I think for the shorter uh, range, we were all expecting, uh, you and, and Bob McHugh and myself and some others, were all expecting that there was going to be a correction this fall. <clears throat> and there was not really much of a correction at all, and things kind of went sideways, mm-hmm. and they remain in that posture. It's called a continuation pattern. Mm-hmm. And what we think will happen next is 
uh, since we're in the midst of the holidays, we're going to be stuck in the continuation pattern uh, right on into the middle of next month. Now, historically, what happens in early January, the first 10 to 15 days of trading uh, for, for the big markets and most markets in January will set the tone for the entire year. Now, we think that what's going to happen is, from the gold and silver standpoint, uh, we'll, we'll be stalled going sideways and slightly down here in the short period until about the 15th of January, and then we expect major rallies. And then we're expecting also major rallies in the stock market. Okay, so it's um, you're expecting major rallies in the stock market starting when? Uh, sometime early next month. It could be as early as the... You know, like the 7th to the 15th, right in that period, uh-huh. but I think more than likely about the 15th forward. Okay. And that's for stocks in general. And for gold and silver mining companies, they'll move well, along the mining with the companies rest of the market? Would follow, the mining companies, Jay, would follow that trend, in my, in my opinion. And mm-hmm. also we're looking for, on the futures for gold and silver, we're looking for those things to open up and rally as well. Now, the cycles are, are messed up and delayed. Uh, we expected a major correction from Labor Data to about October 15th. has not happened. Uh, it corrected slightly, and then it's gone sideways. And, and Bob McHugh is correct. As long as we continue for a longer period of time going sideways, the greater the, the up or down when it finally begins. Uh-huh. Well, so McHugh was clearly uh, believes that we're in a secular bear market. Uh, Robert... Um, Prector, who I had on here, believes we're in a secular bear market. Uh, Bob Hoy would definitely opine in that direction as well. What do you think? Are we going to take I, out I the March absolutely, lows? I absolutely agree. And that, uh, well, what's going to surprise a lot of people is this. Uh, the stock market may not trade down that much because we have a lot of heavy inflation going the other direction. Mm-hmm. And But if you compare gold and gold's value to the stocks, Mm-hmm. Uh, golds, uh, the, the stocks are going to be worth a lot less, except, of course, the gold and silver stocks. Yeah. In other words, it's the old question of what's nominal and what's real. Right. Well, that's certainly a theme that Bob Hoy has hit on. We've talked about it on this show frequently, is the real price of gold. And if you go and look at the, at one time, it took 44 ounces of gold to buy the Dow Jones. Now it's less, it's under nine, I think, or something like that. I guess you can do the math with the Dow where it is, and gold price a little over eleven, around eleven hundred, a little under that now. Uh, Roger, what are your thoughts on the bond market? I mean, we've been waiting for a bond market decline for a long, long time. You and I have been talking about it; it just doesn't come. What's going on there? Well, we've had several false starts and fits in the bond market, going in both directions. But most recently, the bonds hit a peak of one twenty-two, one twenty-three on the long bond, and then what's happened is, is that we went down to 116. And then we're looking at a situation now where Japan is actually selling bonds to pay uh, pensioners pensions, which I think is an ominous signal. Or are they selling U.S. Treasuries? They're selling Japan bonds. Okay, but they hold a lot of U.S. Treasuries too, do they not? one pocket into another pocket. And the other thing that, and we mentioned this many times before, and this is exceedingly important, the bond market is 70 times the size of the stock market. And the bond traders are going to go pretty much where they want to go, irrespective of the rates that are set by the Federal Reserve. And what we're seeing is the biggest bond traders like PIMCO, Bill Gross told us that uh, 
He's selling treasuries right now. He doesn't like the looks of this thing. And we don't like the looks of what's happening with the Japanese bonds uh, for for some of the reasons we just mentioned and for others. So things are getting to an inflection point here. There's no question. And when this bond market starts to roll, then we've got some big trouble. But, Roger, do do not the Japanese also own a lot of U.S. treasuries? And would they not be selling some of those? They've got a lot of investment in U.S. treasuries. And so do the Chinese. And and what they're trying to do with those is get out of the longer, the 30-year, and hit more for the short-term bonds in an effort to try to perhaps uh, have a, more of a security or a safety net should they make the decision that they want to get out. So um, it's a very interesting uh, uh, paradigm that we've got right now. Uh, they own our bonds. They own their own bonds. And... Quite preferably, they would rather own none of them, I'm sure. Okay, Roger, uh, we want to look at a little bit at last year. Just we got about a minute left here, and that's about all the time we've got left with you. But can you tell us what worked for you? Where did you make some money last year, and where do you think we can make some money in 2010? Well, we made our best money in some of the junior stocks early in the year and also in trading our silver and gold spreads and also in some futures and commodities spreads in grains. With inflation coming, I think it's very important for our readers, listeners, and investors to know we're heading into an inflationary environment. Prices are going to go higher faster. This is going to drive the whole commodity sector, including gold and silver and grains and including oil. So we, we thought oil was going to be stuck at around 80 bucks, but now we're looking at more like 90 Oh, so these are some markets that should be played on the long side in 2010, then, in your opinion? Yes, absolutely. Well, we don't want food, people to enter food. prematurely. It's, it, we've got to wait for this thing to complete itself so we get a definitive direction before we jump in. Okay, but you still see us in a bear market where we could take out the lows of March in the general big equity market? I think so, but keep in, keep in mind that the other side of the coin is the inflation. Okay. So, you know, it's entirely possible to, to find a base of 10-4 in the Dow, but if gold is worth so much more, I mean, those stocks aren't worth much. I understand. It's going to be worth a lot less. I understand. Well, Roger, thank you so much for uh, for your ideas here, and we're going to have you on. The, you know, as I say, next year we're going to a two-hour format. We're going to have more time with Roger and Chen and other guests. Uh, Roger, really enjoy your your thoughts, and uh, folks, you can take out a, a trial subscription to Roger's newsletter. Uh, just call in that number seven one eight four five seven one four two six or go to our website at miningstocks.com. Well, next up, we're going to have Bill Baker. He's the author of a, an excellent book called Endless Money, and he's going to give us some ideas about printing press madness and the, the enormous amount of money that's being created. Is it going to result in a, a hyperinflation, or might we see a deflationary depression, or maybe ne- neither of those? Maybe we're going to have a nice soft landing. Let's hope and pray for that. We're going to see what, uh, what Bill Baker has to say in just a few minutes. Don't go away. We'll be right back after our station break. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network.
Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Our special guest this week is William Baker. He's the author of a great book uh, titled Endless Money. For over 25 years, Bill Baker is a CFA, uh, has been an equity money manager or investment researcher with large companies, and some of these years he spent developing uh, two companies, GARP Research and Securities Company and Gainsworth or Gainswood Investment Management. Before this, we, he was at Reich and Tang and Oppenheimer Funds and Van Kempen American Capital, uh, being responsible for mutual funds or institutional accounts during most of that time. 
One fund he managed at Oppenheimer was awarded a five-star rating in November 1990. Uh, Mr. Baker received his MBA from the Amos Tuck School at Dartmouth College in 1980, and he was uh, granted a BA in economics in 1978 from the University of Pennsylvania. He is a vice president and trustee of the Harbor League, and he recently founded conservativeeconomist.com, conservativeeconomist.com, in his book, Endless Money, The Moral Hazards of Socialism, he explains how the government and the country's financial system have embraced socialism. William, thanks for joining us here at Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Jay. Uh, it's really, uh, I'd like to begin by just reading a, uh, an excerpt uh, from, inside, from the inside flap on your book, uh, the okay. cover. It says, uh, the meltdown of the financial sector in 2008 took the world by surprise, yet credit crises have been part of the human experience since before the birth of Christ. Even in the best of times of the Roman Republic, a span of about two centuries, there were about a half dozen credit crises. However, with the detachment of money from an asset-based like, an asset base like gold or silver, a sharp line of demarcation between money and credit has practically dissolved. With currency created at the click of a mouse or produced in quantity when a central bank credits its balance sheet in exchange for government debt, that is where we are at these days. Uh, this has made a tremendous difference, a tremendous change, has it not, in the way the world is run, the way our monetary policy uh, is conducted. And I guess what you're saying here is that there's no limit to the amount of paper money, um, liability money, if you will, that can be created. Is that right? Uh, well, I guess what I'm saying is, is under this, you know, new system of endless money, uh, maybe it's a misnomer. It isn't completely endless. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, but it feels like it's endless, you know, and the, it, before we founded the Fed, uh, and we had a gold or silver backed system, the supply of money could get out of hand, but it would, it would be self-correcting. Now, uh, you, you, we've just printed so much money that it's, it's, you, you, it's risen dramatically, but you know trees just can't grow to the sky completely. So we've hit ridiculous ratios, and I think people are beginning to feel the pinch uh, uh, in terms of their incomes being insufficient to service the debt that they've racked up. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that is the limiting factor: is how how well people can service the debt and how much they have ever paid for uh, uh, assets that are financed over very long periods of time, like you know thirty-year mortgage. Right, so so maybe it isn't limitless. Then, obviously, as you say, people we're seeing people strained everywhere. We're seeing corporations, we're seeing state governments hitting the hitting the wall. They're they're broke, um, and yet we keep printing more money. Uh, Obama keeps stimulating. Bernanke keeps pumping more money in the system. And what you're saying here is that uh, something's going to come to a head. Yeah, I mean, it did come to a head once. Uh, you know, as we all know, last year. Uh, in 2008, and uh, you know, we put I, one of the subchapters of my book is the penny in the fuse box, and that the Fed has uh, kind of inserted the penny in the fuse box and kept put the lights back on. But we all know mm -hmm. that's a foolhardy thing to do; that your whole house can burn down once you do that. Right. Well, right now we we seem to be doing you know a lot better. I mean, everybody seems to be optimistic now. Uh, some people have drawn parallels to the 1930s, where we had the initial decline. And then we had a what the um, uh, what some technical analysts refer to as a B wave up, and then everybody thought things were just fine, and they jumped back into the equity market, 
and the real damage was done from 1931, 1932, that time frame, in the Great Depression. Do you think we could be on to something similar to that now? I think it's, there's a huge danger of that, that we've had, had this rebound and uh, that you know, the, the waterfall decline starts all over again soon. I'm wondering, uh, you talk in your book about American monetary history, and of course the 1913 is when the Federal Reserve was created. Uh, in my lifetime, the most important time frame that I remember vividly as a young guy, 1971, when Nixon closed the gold window, and that's when I look back at the monetary aggregates, and that's when we started to see inflation creeping up during the 1970s, when we started to see enormous rises in M3 and various monetary aggregates. Would you care to discuss a little bit about our monetary history? For the longest time, of course, there was a great deal of resistance to the Federal Reserve, uh, any kind of central bank. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, was against it. Uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, other members, uh, you know, going back further in our history, were adamantly opposed to a central bank. But could you want to talk just a little bit about the uh, significance of our monetary history, maybe pre-1913 and then post-1913? Uh, certainly. Uh, basically, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting in the book, I, uh, I devote I don't know, probably uh, 80 to 100 pages on, on the history because I think people don't learn this in school. <laughs> I was an economics Absolutely. major, and I, I took as many history courses as economics courses, and uh, it was like this was a big secret. Uh, but basically, uh, there's a great uh, economic historian, Murray Rothbard, that I'm sure a lot of your listeners know who's written a lot sure. about this. And you, reader, sure. you know, listeners can read his stuff for the details as well as in my book. If you go back to, uh, you know, in the, the pre-colonial days, um, uh, or in the colonial days, rather, be, before we were a nation, the, the uh, various colonies, particularly, you know, Massachusetts kicked it off and started uh, replacing silver with paper and paying their troops to go invade in uh, Canada and uh, finance the, you know, French and Indian War, and, and, uh, and that paper eventually collapsed, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, the silver came back into the country. There were prosperous times. Uh, and this was just before the revolution. Then you had the revolution, and we had to finance it. And you had the continental dollar, which, which did get printed in a hyperinflationary uh, amount, you know, quantity that was uh, uh, enough to, to make, make it worth, you know, maybe a penny on the dollar, I think, by the time we were all done. And that experience was so dramatic that... Um, that our founding fathers, you know, wrote into the Constitution that the uh, uh, dollar should be a uh, certain number of gram, uh, grains of gold or silver, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's what we were we had until you know Alexander Hamilton started us on this uh, path toward banking, which mm-hmm. uh, the British uh, had as well, and uh, we started to create what I call bank money, where uh, bank deposits get lent. And then uh, those paper tickets that are circulating get redeposited and lent out, and the, and the leverage of the total circulating medium relative to the underlying gold or silver reserves expands. And it expanded so much. Bank capital from 1800 to 1830 grew 25-fold. Uh, it's a dramatic increase. So the, the amount of paper that was circulating was huge. And it was being used to buy... Uh, Frontier real estate, particularly uh, after the uh, war, of, well, really after you know 
1800 or so in Alabama, and uh, and then after the War of 1812, and you know further westward, uh, and you you started to see these crises, uh, and you had the first phenomenon of you know mass urban unemployment uh, mm. in the uh, uh, 18-teens, and uh, you know it's interesting because in that first bout, 1814. Uh, you had uh, it was so bad that the banks could not redeem their uh, their underlying uh, paper with the gold or silver that it was promised to be uh, redeemable mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. and so it was suspended. And we had prosperity after that; the economy came roaring back, but uh, debt increased. And then by 1819, you had a horrible panic, and it all collapsed. And uh, and you had many years of, of, of bad times after that. We didn't learn our lesson. Bank capital kept increasing. Uh, you got into, you know, 1834, uh, and uh, the debt got pretty big. And again, you know, although we were on a uh, gold and silver system, basically what was circulating was paper, and the paper was being used to buy real estate once again and so forth. And, and you, you got to the point where uh, uh, you had a big big downturn and a panic in 1834, uh, but then it, you know, there was a recovery again through, you know, 1835 and so forth, and then, then you had another panic in 1837 that then took until, you know, the early 1840s to get out of because there was just so much debt. And mm-hmm. uh, so basically you have this vacillation between having a primarily paper circulate, even though it was backed by gold, and then people having a desire to move back to something real that wasn't mm-hmm. this false prosperity of paper pushing up uh, real estate prices. Mm-hmm. And you could really follow that. I mean, the, you know, the greenback era and the Civil War, uh, Lincoln basically you know, abandoned gold and silver entirely, and uh, uh, we went to a fiat system. Uh, and, uh, and then we had resumption of gold after that in 1870. One, I guess we, we passed the Resumption Act, and I think it was effective in 1879. I think I've got a year or two off there, but uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we had the gold standard, and that was a great period of time in the, in the late, you know, last 20 to 25 years of the, uh, of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, you know, it's interesting, even towards, towards the end of that, we started to lever up more. There's this, this human tendency to want to lend our money recklessly if, if we're a, a holder of capital, and there's also a human tendency to want to borrow more. Uh, and there were panics, you know, going up the, the famous 1907 panic then spooked people and they wanted to start the Federal Reserve. Right. But, you know, that thinking they were curing the problem, they really were casting a vote for let's have uh, a lot of dilution of the underlying gold or silver, and mm-hmm. let's increase the money supply a lot. And when you first do that, you know, that was a, a real change in attitude, and the 20th century has been very different from the 19th century or even the 18th century. So you got to, to you people were not that leveraged compared to modern times. So when you hit World War One and the government needed to pay for it, they printed like crazy, and there was tremendous inflation, and bond prices collapsed, uh, and a lot had been sold to support the war. And we've really been living in that aftermath of that, or we were living in that aftermath of that, leading right up to the uh, 1929 peak. There were a lot of unstable aspects of the 1920s. Uh, so you really have to kind of understand that big inflation that, 
that happened 10 years before 1929 to know mm-hmm. why you had the crash in 29. I go through that in the book. And, uh, and you know, this is basically a period where you, you debt was 190% of GDP in 1929. People were uncomfortable with that. And, yep. uh, and so they, were, they started to pay it down in the early right. 1930s. And that, that uh, corrected things, but it reduced the money supply, and the government tried to lean against the wind, which I think prolonged the Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, finally, by the 1950s, you had a low debt-to-GDP ratio, about 150%. But ever since then, it, it started creeping up. And when you hit 1971, and we were no longer required to redeem the dollar with gold to our foreign creditors, you know, mm-hmm. and the trade balance sure. and capital account balances, uh, that's when you started to have this explosive growth in the M's like, like you were talking about in the beginning mm-hmm. of your question. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, my uh, theory about this is, you know, if you're starting from a relatively low level, level of leverage, uh, you can, you know, and the government chooses to print or to spend, uh, you, the natural course that that's going to happen after that is that people are going to lever up more because there's mm-hmm. more debt capacity and that'll create a lot of inflation mm-hmm. but at a certain point you run into a very high ratio you know like 400 uh, percent and mm-hmm. and you know and it's just unserviceable and that's right. what we saw in the 19th century in these various panics we got to really gross levels of debt relative to income okay uh, so anyway you, you asked you me mentioned... to go back 300 years it took me probably 10 minutes to do that but that's that's yeah. the short history, and you can see this vacillation back and forth. And gold is the antithesis of debt. And I think the pendulum is swinging towards gold now and away from credit and debt. And we're just about to test, you know, how solid is the debt of the U.S. government? Mm-hmm. Can taxpayer revenue service it? And I don't mm-hmm. think it can with, with socialism because you're only expecting 6 million households to pay it, and you just develop, divide $12 trillion by Six million households, and that's you know yeah. two million dollars a piece. That's yeah. it's not it's not workable today where we are, and and I think socialism is bound up in this whole monetary question, and in that way, and some other ways too. Okay, Bill, you mentioned that we got to one hundred and ninety percent, I think, uh, debt to GDP back in the in the nineteen thirties. Where are we now? Uh, I Much think that by the that, end of 2008, the, the uh, personal debt and including uh, government debt, uh, federal government debt, you know, reached something like 370 to 380 percent, something like that, and it, it may have uh, uh, risen a little bit since then. Okay, so now we have this notion that we can print amounts of money. Bernanke was brought in to make sure we didn't have a 1930s uh, reoccurrence by printing more, being more aggressive than the, than the Fed was in the 1930s. There's this notion that Bernanke knows how to do it, and uh, we were doing the right things in the 1930s, just not enough of it. Isn't that basically uh, what the, what the well, um, general opinion I, is in the mainstream? That's what the general opinion is. That's what, if you asked, uh, you know, Tim Gaithner what he thinks, that's what he you know, what would say to you, uh, yeah. they just didn't do enough in the 1930s. Yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, that, uh, you, you can go back and you can look even at, you know, the, the myth that uh, we all had to, to read, you know, Milton Friedman and economics yeah. in college. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and his, his theory was if the Fed had just uh, printed money and leaned against the wind, then we wouldn't have had the Depression. 
Right. Uh, and actually, you know, you can read uh, Murray Rothbard documents it, and, you know, reserves uh, were injected by the Fed pretty aggressively in yeah. 1931 and 32. And the money supply, you know, in 30, 31, I think it grew 2% or something, and, but mm-hmm. then it started to decline in 1932. And uh, uh, now, you know, we've, if you look at broad money, uh, it was 14 trillion uh, a year ago, and it's uh, roughly, and it's grown by about 260 billion, which is not very much. Mm-hmm. Yet the Fed has injected a trillion three in reserves since the crisis began. So this, uh, you know, phenomenon of, of uh, fractional reserve banking increasing the money supply when you inject it is running backwards now. You yeah. know, people want to pay down the debt, so a trillion dollars has been destroyed over the last year, even though the Fed's trying to lean against the wind. I think that's an element that people are not focusing on enough, and they think, oh, if we only lean a little bit harder. You know, and, and well, yes, and the, and the notion also, the Keynesian economics notion, was that you needed the government needed to come in and spend and pump money into the system that way. The Federal Reserve, of course, would, would make money available to finance that, to you know, create it out of thin air. Uh, right. But there comes a point, as you point out, I believe that where, you know, banks want to lend money. I think banks would lend money if they thought they could make money and get it back, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But but, but I think that they're looking at they their customers and, and it's looking pretty risky for them now. I mean, credit cards are being taken back in mass. I mean, Meredith Whitney talks about the huge amounts of $1.7 trillion worth of credit card and at least lines of credit to individuals, and some of that has to do with mortgages and things too. Perhaps I don't know. But uh, so, how far can this thing go? And let me ask you: Do you think then are we? What's the danger here? This is going to get worked out. Where the debt cannot be repaid. It's so great, and it builds up much faster than income is is growing. Isn't that the case? Yeah, and I and I think we're going to see. You know, the private sector is paying down debt, and the government sector is offsetting it. So it's it's kind of a stalemate. But uh, I do, I do think that the the real issue here is that our money supply is primarily based on real estate today because the deposits that you hold at the bank uh, have been, you know, they're not sitting in a drawer somewhere or in a vault. <laughs> you know, they've they've been given to someone who paid top dollar for a house a couple of years ago, right? And you know. Depending on whose statistics you see, 20 or 30 percent of those mortgages mortgages are underwater. I don't think there's any reason to assume that decades of overinvestment in real estate is going to be wiped out by a you know 25 percent decline in prices. Uh, you know what happens if prices fall another 20 percent for real estate? Uh, you know the government financed every single mortgage basically written this year. Uh, mm-hmm. so they're doing everything they can to prop up that real estate market because they know if they don't, if those prices of, of properties fall, uh, you know, there, there's an instability in the banking system. And, you know, and that's an, another interesting thing with this monetary base. They, they jacked it up right at the time of the crisis, and we thought, oh, that's temporary, and uh, they'll begin to pull that back. And it stayed level for quite a while, and then a couple of months ago, it just started to take off and grow again. And you've got to ask yourself, I think that's an indicator of the, the negative cash flow, if you will, of the banking system in totality yeah. right now. 
Uh, right, because because the loans the loans aren't being serviced. Is that it? And so right. the banks are really yeah. going bra- broke, so they have to pump more like more capital, more make believe capital into the banking system. Exactly, the bank goes and screams and asks the Fed for more money and says, "Hey, look, we have negative cash flow. Send us some money quick." And they go, "Okay, here you go. Here's some more reserves." And uh, and those injections uh, suddenly have picked up steam. And you know we. We changed the accounting uh, rules, so now banks don't have to report uh, any of their losses anymore, and mm-hmm. they can repay the TARP with this, you know, reserve injection that they get from the Fed. So, you know, that's easy. You know, it's this myth that the banks are healthy. Well, if the yes. banks are healthy, why do they need all this reserve injection? Right. Yeah. Well, that's a good there's, question. there's really a lie here, and you, you, if you zero in on that monetary base creation right now, that that's, tells you what's going on. Bill, we only have a few minutes left here. Uh, I need to ask you then, what is the bottom line on this thing? Do you believe, uh, how, how is this going to be resolved? Is it going to be resolved through a deflationary depression or a hyperinflationary uh, depression or something in between the two, perhaps? Uh, I think you're going to see lower prices for assets. I think you're going to see uh, you know, a rise in unemployment uh, from levels from here. Uh, I don't know whether it starts today or a year from today. You know, studying these old uh, panic periods, you know, there can be a couple of years in between one and the next. Right. Uh, but I think that the debt is just too high. and It's got to work, get worked down. The asset prices have to fall and the debt has to fall. Uh, certainly, the Fed's going to try and print its way out of this. Uh, there's a there's a small chance that you get some kind of hyperinflation from there uh-huh. tipping too far. But uh, uh-huh. you know, I don't know. My my thinking is, so odd as it sounds, it may be that they're a little behind the curve for a year or two, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. Uh, then the question will be, do they go berserk after that? It seems really to me they might have to get money in the hands of the masses, though. So far, they've been pumping money in the system, but it's gone mostly to make sure that Goldman Sachs boys have their bonuses, it seems. It's, it's very hard, and if, you, you know, if you're basically a socialist and you want to use the fiscal spending uh, to allocate the money, it's going to get plugged into you know, malinvestment, to bad things, and it's going to get plugged into propping up uh, industries that are uncompetitive, like our auto industry, uh, that needs to be restructured instead. So yep. you're gonna you're gonna have leakage there, and then when it actually gets to some worker who's you know building a road or a car or whatever he's doing, the guy's levered up to his eyeballs. So he's gonna pay yep. down debt with it. You know, it's not yep. like it's it, they're instantly gonna say, oh, well, I just feel better because Tim Gaither told me to feel better. They're gonna, he's gonna look at his pocketbook and say, you know, I better pay this thing down. So okay, I, Bill, I, what, I, I need trend. to because we only have a couple of minutes here yet. I need yeah. to ask you then what uh, you are a money manager. Where are you putting your money? Where are you putting your clients' money at the moment? What sectors are you going into? And how can the average person best protect themselves? And we're talking about wealthy people. We're talking about people that actually work for a living and actually produce something for a living, common, good, hardworking people. How can they best protect themselves? Uh, I think that uh, I'd be wary of uh, relying too much on the traditional things like uh, putting all your money in in uh, well, for, in the in bank accounts and mm-hmm. so forth. I think you got to have some component in physical gold, and uh, as a as a protection because the banking system is is weak. Uh, if you have enough money, you know, to to invest, uh, I I think gold equities are very interesting here, and you know you can decide on how much risk you can take as to how much of that you can you can have. But I would try to mm-hmm. be 
as unleveraged as possible. And then if on the other side of the coin, if you're the average guy out there and you're in debt, which a lot of you are, try to pay it down any way you can. Right. Uh, that would be my well, advice, too. Well, certainly if you see a deflationary future, not having debt is much better than having it, that's for sure. And it's safer not to have it because who knows which way this is going to tip. We have people on this show, Walter Williams, for example, or John Williams, I should say, who is a hyperinflationist, and he he, he yeah, I read that 2010 stuff. is going to be the year that we start to see hyperinflation. And one thing we do know, and you as a historian would know better than I perhaps, that when hyperinflations do finally erupt, they can happen very, very rapidly without much advance yeah. notice. I'm so, not uh, saying it couldn't happen. Uh, you, would, you would need a, a, a Fed that's a lot more aggressive, even though it sounds like they've been crazy uh, so yeah. far. You know, they need to print uh, three or four trillion, something really, really major. It isn't out of the mm-hmm. question, but it seems implausible right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Bernanke's making noises like he could do it, though. You know, yep. you never know. Well, I know, and Ron Paul, who we interviewed here, suggested that they have the mechanism in place through the tax structure or whatever just to, just to hand money out to the masses. So we'll see what happens. It certainly is an interesting time to be alive. It, it could have its challenges, though, as we go forward. I think it really does have its challenges. Bill, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on our show. I would also like to have you tell our listeners where they can learn more about your work and how they can follow what you're doing. Yeah, there are two ways to do it. One is, you know, the, the book, Endless Money, uh, and it's available uh, online through the major booksellers. It's also in, uh, in bookstores. Uh, and there's a website, readendless.com, uh, where you can, can uh, find out more about it. The other way is a free uh, website, conservativeeconomist.com, which I started up after the book, and there's regular uh, commentary there, and uh, I'll, I'll be writing uh, about uh, you know, gold and the economy and what the banking system in there. Well, I think, uh, I think this is definitely a, a website, and your work is, will be of interest to our listeners, I'm sure. Thank you again, Bill, for coming on. Perhaps we can have you on again sometime. Thanks a lot, Jay. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Well, we'll be back right back after the break, folks, with Chen Lin. He's going to talk a little bit about uh, what he made money on this year and where he thinks you can make money in 2010. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Chen Lin. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. 
He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, last week in our show, we had a pretty controversial guest, I suppose you could say, in some ways, uh, because we normally don't interject religion or uh, issues of faith into this news, into this uh, broadcast, but... We did talk to Dr. Hugh Ross. He's a mainstream astronomer who talked about how modern understanding of the universe and its creation uh, actually confirms, in his view, rather than uh, disputes the uh, the biblical account of creation. Not a not a literal 24-hour understanding of creation, but over millions and billions of years. In fact, the universe uh, 12, 14 billion years ago. Uh, so we had an atheist listener write in, and he said, uh, he said, regarding the latest radio show, I do not see the relevance of religion to mining stocks. As an atheist, it is hard not to see the discussion as one of superstitions. But I have an open mind to some extent. If I were to believe any religion, it would be the Jewish religion. To my knowledge, this is the only religion with the universally accepted book directly from the deity, the five books of Moses. All other religions are merely gospels written from politically motivated, biased, and flawed men. As such, they are all cults, including Christianity. Maybe your next religious discussion can uh, include those topics, too. Well, I thank you for, uh, for expressing those views, and, and I would welcome any other views to any of our topics that we discuss on this show. And you can go to jaysmedia.com, that's J-A-Y-S-media.com, 
and write anything you want on there, and it will get back to me, and we can we can discuss it. The reason that I work Dr. Ross into this show is I do believe there is an issue of morality that is missing. If you do believe there is a supreme being, a God that rules over us, it makes it makes all the difference in the world in a sense as to how you live your life in this world and how and and maybe also to the extent there's another world what you know what that has to do with uh, you know with our future. So these are just some things I don't think that we can divorce the notion of religion and a supreme being or the lack thereof from the way we conduct our lives and that's the reason I brought in Dr. Ross. Well, that's a little far afield from what we're normally going to discuss. We're not going to turn this into a religious show, I can tell you that for sure. Uh, but uh, but that's the explanation. And I would welcome controversial views be expressed at jaysmedia.com on, on that topic or any others that we discuss. Well, I have Chen Lin with me here for the wrap-up today. Uh, Chen, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Chen, uh, you've had a remarkably successful year this year uh, with your investing. Can you tell our listeners what has worked well for you in 2009? Well, the... Uh, mostly is the uh, mining stock in the gold, uh, junior mining stock. Uh, I was uh, able to, uh, to buy a lot of, uh, depressed, you know, gold uh, junior miners at depressed pricing early this year. Uh, actually some are before I even start a newsletter. Uh, the, you know, and uh, I have uh, quite a few many, you know, uh, big, uh, big runs uh, of those juniors. And I was able to also to pick up more, you know, uh, along the way, so gradually, you know, like uh, uh, take a profit and then move on to the next, and so on and so forth. And yeah, could I'll, you a, could you possibly name a couple of companies that you did really well with this year? One of the winner is the Oceana. Oceana mm-hmm. did very well. I it's triple more than triple four quadrupled at at one point for me, and uh, also uh, have actually the biggest winner is Allside Gold. It's it's agriculture bank. It's AGM, the federal yes. ag- agriculture. That's uh, almost ninefolded and tenfolded for me. Uh, <laughs> in a very short old. period of time, I might add. Yeah, in about a week. Yeah, in so, a week. Those are, yeah, mm-hmm, those are you know very very big winners for me. And also have many many you know doubled you know triple those uh, I'd call it relatively small uh, you know winners because like yes. a year like this year you know it's just, if you only double. It's uh, it's not a good you know it's not a good performance. It's not, so you would you would consider a double this year as being a failure. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, actually, I'm thinking <laughs> to write up something about all my failed calls. You know, there are a lot of uh, bad picks, and uh, you know those mm-hmm. are I don't I, I, I thought I didn't uh, live up with my uh, expectation. All right. Well, you had a great year in 2009. A lot of people did. So what about 2010? What are you seeing going forward? Are we going to have another good one in 2010? we got a minute left, Jen. Right. Basically, I see how gold uh, in the first half should do well, gold, silver, juniors. There are a couple of reasons. Uh, I usually, they go doing well in the spring. And the second, there's a lot of gold fund that should raise money. They When they got money in early next year, so when they deploy the money, they will drive a lot of gold uh, stock, especially juniors, much higher. And there's a couple of reasons I listed in my um, uh, in my recent alert, and also like agriculture and healthcare and energy, uh, that's that's the other three sectors I really like for 2010. Very interesting. Well, we'll be uh, we'll be talking. We're going to go to that expanded two-hour format, Chen, and we're going to have a lot more chance for you and Roger and others to talk about uh, their views next year. We're really looking forward to that. Thank you 
so much, Chen. We're just about uh, running out of time here. I just want to mention, folks, that uh, you can get a subscription to Chen's letter. Uh, it's only $39 for a one-month trial. Chen, how many, how many alerts did you send out this last year? Uh, so far, the numbers 200, 217 as of today. And that started in, in January. So you, you get an idea, folks. Chen is very active. He sends out alerts and ideas, trading ideas, almost a couple, two, three a week. And uh, for $39, you can try his service for one month. Uh, again, call 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to miningstocks.com. You can do the same for Roger and my letter as well. I've got a three-month trial for $59, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Well, next week, our special guest uh, is uh, going to be uh, Martin Gross. Martin Gross is an author of a book called National Suicide. Uh, Martin Gross is talking about a lot of the same things uh, that Bill Baker talked about today, the enormous amount of debt and how we're choking on our debt and how it is bringing us, going to bring us to a state of insolvency. As we get ready to close here, I just want to thank again you, all of you for listening to this show. I want to thank our sponsors. And I want to thank uh, Tacey Trump. He's a, she is our senior executive producer, Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, and Travis Ortwin, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Until next week, again, thanks for listening, and until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.